You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. It was 100 years ago this week that the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma was ransacked and bombed and burned and set on fire. 200 black residents were killed by a mob of white vigilantes who burned 35 square city blocks. 191 businesses burned to the ground. The hospital in that district, six doctor's offices and six churches burned to the ground. One of those six churches that burned to the ground was Vernon Chapel AME, African Methodist Episcopalian. And for the next seven years, Vernon Chapel collected money to to restore, to rebuild their, their church. They, they collected all the donors in, in a ledger, in a book that they called the Book of Redemption. Here's a picture of it on the screen behind me. It's kept, it's housed today at the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. A, a ledger of person after person, hundreds of people giving money, often just a few dollars, black donors and white donors, to rebuild this church. In fact, it was the only one of the six churches burned that was rebuilt. It stands even today on Greenwood Avenue in in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Money being collected to restore what was destroyed. Thus the word redemption, the book of redemption, the restoring of that which was destroyed. In Eden's garden, we destroyed it all. Creation relationships, our soul, our connectivity with God, our eternal lives. God's redemption, therefore, is the purchasing of the restoration of all that we destroyed. So this summer, we're going to take a deep dive into the ark of redemption, a deep dive into the biography of every Christian in this room. If you're not a Christian, this can be your story. We're going to take a deep dive into a God who loves and pursues and rejoices in causing destroyed things to be restored, dead things to come back to life. We're going to trace the Redeemer, God through Christ, and the redeemed, those who are in Christ, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And if you have the Bible all figured out, and you fully understand your salvation, then Skip this summer and we'll see you in August. But if you're overwhelmed by God's rich character towards you, and you're even fascinated with your spiritual biography on how you were saved, I encourage you, hang on for a ride this summer as we begin this brand new series, The Ark of Redemption. For you see, there is a purchase that was made to restore everything that we had destroyed. We talk a lot here at Highland about the upper story and and the lower story. The upper story, that is the Ark of Redemption. It's God's narrative of how he desires and he will and he is and one day will fully redeem and restore all that was destroyed. We also have the lower story. The lower story are all the individual different stories of the Bible, the the narratives, the, the names, the battles, the situations, the geography, the city, and every lower story points to the upper story. Every lower story points to the ark of redemption. So we're going to start this morning in a place you should find very easy. Let's go to the book of Genesis together, the very first book in the Bible. I'm encouraged you to have your Bible open today. 
and let's let's walk through the, just the beginning of, of this arc of redemption. In fact, all we're going to be in today is the book of Genesis. That's that's all we can cover today. There's so much in these first few chapters of Genesis. You begin to see the the the, the genesis. That's the word for Genesis. It's the Greek word for origin. The origin of God's redemption. In fact, if you miss the first few chapters of Genesis, you miss the entire story of Scripture. Let's see some huge truths today about God and some huge truths about us, those needing redemption. So here's the beginning of the ark and how God redeems his people for his great glory and for our great good. It begins, first of all, with the nature of our Redeemer. Uh, This series is going to be a note-taker's paradise. So if you like to take notes, you're going to enjoy the summer a whole lot. The nature of our Redeemer. First of all, God is the absolute creator. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This verse alone could capture our attention for a thousand years. God created. It was God who created, which means God was not created. No one created God. He, he was, he is, he always will be. Robert Jastrow uh, received his PhD in planetary physics from Columbia University, went on to study and to be a professor at Yale and was the founding director of NASA's Institute for Space Study. Here's what he said. It seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation For the scientist who has lived in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. I love that quote. God is the absolute creator. He sits above his creation. This means God is distinct from creation. He's not a part of creation. And really creation is not even a part of him. And all in chapter one, this absolute creator speaks into his existence. Light, verse three. Darkness, verse four. The heavens, verse eight. The waters, verse nine. Dry land, verse nine. Plants and trees, verse 11. The moon, the sun, the stars, verse 16. Fish and birds, verse 21. The beast of the earth, verse 24. And mankind, verse 26. Everything came into existence by the voice, the word, the power of God. And then all of this creation is sustained by this absolute creator. But not only is God absolute creator, God is also the attending king. In other words, after he creates, he sticks around. After he creates, he stays and he exercises his kingly rule and his power over all of creation. He is not some far off creator who speaks everything into existence and then becomes distant or unaware or vulnerably uninvolved. I say this because it's important to know that our God did not create all things and then just walk away. As attending king, he interacts, he relates his creation. He relates and interacts with humanity. Uh, Chapter 1, again, go to verse 27 with me and let's see this, this interaction that God has with his prized creation, mankind. Verse 27 of chapter 1, so God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, verse 27, and God blessed them. There's the interaction. And God said, here's the interaction. And God said to them, there's the interaction, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God is an attending king, but he's also the righteous judge. This God is also going to govern. He's going to have governance. He's going to create laws and he's going to give commands. Chapter two, just go over one page. Maybe if you're still in chapter one, look at chapter two, look at verse 15. Let me read 15 through 17. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And here's the governance of God. And the Lord God commanded the man. He is going to govern. He's going to create laws. He commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's a command. Here's governance. You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He's going to judge sin. And so not only will he set up governance and set up rules, but when mankind decides to disobey disobey and walk outside of those rules and that governance, we're going to see the judgment of God. And he is a righteous judge. Look at chapter 3. Look at verse 14 with me. God's about to judge the serpent. He's going to judge the woman. He's going to judge the man. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, here comes the judgment, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your offspring, serpent, and her offspring. And that offspring shall bruise or crush your head and all you shall do is bruise his heel. To the woman, here comes the judgment for her. He said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Verse 17, the judgment and said to Adam, God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, all the judgments of God are right. They, they, they are pure, they are holy, they are accurate. And he's going to bring the flood in Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and, and 9. And his judgments there for all mankind. Those judgments are right because he is the righteous judge. And every one of us here in this house. And everyone watching online. There will come a day you will stand before God. And he will be your judge. And he will judge us accurately. But before you tremble. And weep inconsolably over a righteous judge. You also need to know that God is the compassionate Savior. He is not indifferent to our needs. He is extremely loving. He is infinitely good. His mercy for you is inexhaustible. You see, this is the portrait of of the Redeemer, Creator, King, Judge, Savior. And he is all four of these things at all times. He's not righteous at one time and then compassionate at another time. He's not creator or king, but creator and king. 
And these attributes are never compromised in the character of God all throughout scripture and all throughout eternity. This is our God. And he is redeemer. If that's the nature of God, the redeemer, what is our nature? What is the nature of humanity? You might just want to label this. What's our nature? What are, what are we about? Well, first of all, we are created in the image of God. I want you to see it again. Go back to, to chapter one. Look at verse 27 with me. Genesis chapter one, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. So we are creating the image of God. In the image of God, it's stated there again. He created him. God created him. Male and female, he created them. There are about four things we can see right there. First of all, there are two genders. Number two, all life has worth because all humans were created in the image of God. Thirdly, this is important. We are the created and not the creator. In other words, we're subject to the thoughts of God, but God is not subject to the thoughts of man. Fourthly, humanity has value because we weren't accidentally just brought onto the scene. Humanity is precisely and intentionally and uniquely fashioned and created by the hand and voice and power of God. So friends, this is good news. You are a unique reflection of God. Whether you're black or brown or white, you are a unique reflection of God of God. Whether life is going great for you right now or life stinks for you right now, you are a unique reflection of God. Whether you believe it or not, you are a unique reflection of God. Here's the nature of humanity. Yes, created in the image of God, but also created for God's purposes. Which kind of begs the question, what are the purposes of God? I'm so glad you begged because here it is, to enjoy a relationship with God. This is the purpose of God for you, for you to enjoy, not endure and not just cross your fingers and wish you had one, but to enjoy a relationship with God. And we see it all throughout Genesis chapter two, that God walked and related with his prized creation, woman and man. Secondly, the purpose of God, God told man to rule over all creation. Look at chapter one, look at verse 26 with me. Chapter one, verse 26 Then God said, let us make man. Now that's interesting. The plural pronoun us. Who is God speaking to? His son and the spirit. Let us make man in our image. There it is again, a plural pronoun. And after our likeness, there it is the third time, a plural pronoun. God says to the son and to the spirit, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing, those things that you have bug spray for, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We have care. We are called to care, to to rule over Creation. Man has dominion over creation, which is why when man falls in Genesis chapter 3, creation falls also. Thirdly, what's the purpose of God? To fill the earth with God's glory. Chapter 1, verse 28. I hope you're still with me. Verse 28. And, and God blessed them. And, and God said to them, listen to God's command. Be fruitful and multiply and then fill the earth. Go reflect my glory everywhere. Instead, you might remember from Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, they did just the opposite. Instead of scattering, they gathered. Instead of making God's name glorious, they desired to make their own name glorious. Which is a really good segue to the next part of the Ark of Redemption, which is the nature of sin. 
Bible open, chapter 3. Let's look at verse 1 together. This might be a familiar story to many of you. Chapter 3, this is the fall. (laughs) It only lasted two chapters. Only two chapters before man wanted to be his own God. Before man wanted to be in charge of his own life. And I say this in almost every new member class I, I teach. I know a lot of you have been through that class the last couple of years. If it wasn't Adam and Eve, it would have been John and Jennifer. And before he judge us, it would have been you also. We, we all want to be in charge. We all want to shepherd our own lives. Here is the fall. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? By the way, just a little um, interesting fact. This is the first question asked in all the Bible. Interesting, as if God, what God says is subject to human judgment. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said that you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took up its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So here's the nature of sin, and I put a question for you to answer in your own life. Here's the first nature of sin, rejecting God's word. Here's the question you can ask of yourself. Whose voice do I listen to? You see, the very first thing that the enemy comes, Satan comes in, in, in verse 1, and then asks the question, did God really say this? Can you really trust God's word? You need to reject God's word. So the question for us today is, whose voice do I listen to? So for you, who does determine what's right? Who does determine for you what is, what is good, what is true, what is best? Who is telling you right and wrong? Then we see in, in verse 2 and verse 4, that same chapter, we see, we see the nature of sin here, the refusing of God's authority. Oh, I heard what he said, but you don't really have to do what he said. It's a refusing of God's authority. So the question that we can own today is who rules my heart? You see, it's really unwise to declare your independence from God. It's a foolish thing to say, I'm in control of my life, God, and not you. And we may never say that, Christian, with our lips, but sometimes our lives yell it. You see, God is the author of our lives, therefore, he's the authority of our lives. What an affront to a God who is both compassionate and just when we tell him, you do not have authority over us. Verse 5 gives us the second, or excuse me, the third nature of sin, and it's dismissing God's character. Oh, God just doesn't want you to have the best, is what the enemy was saying. He doesn't want you to be like him, and so let's push aside his character, dismissing God's character. Here's the question we can ask of our own lives today. Who do I trust? Who do I obey? You see, Eve trusted herself instead of God, and then, then Adam trusted Eve instead of God. So the question is, who do you trust? Who do you obey? And if it's anybody or anything outside of God, it's a lesser thing. And and the object of your trust, the object of your obedience is, is frail and temporary and incapable and small if it's not God. 
The essence of sin is this, friends. The essence of sin is, I know more than you do, God. The essence of sin is, God, I do not trust your goodness. I don't believe you're good. So what's the result of sin? If that's the nature of sin, then what's, what, what is the result? What happens next? The result of sin, we see in, in, in chapter 3, verse 23 and verse 24, the very end of, of chapter 3. Therefore, the Lord God sent him, meaning Adam, the, but both of them were dismissed. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24, so he, meaning God, drove out the man And at the east of the Garden of Eden, God placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here's the first result of sin, immediate spiritual death. There'd be separation from God. I mean, in chapter 2, there was such closeness, there was such fellowship, connection between God and man, but now it's broken. Now, Adam and Eve, humanity, they're blocked from life in God. What's the second result of sin? We saw it back in verse, chapter 3 of verse 3. At the very end of that, as the serpent is, is talking, the, the lady truthfully answers the enemy, Oh no, but God has said to us, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you even touch it, lest you die. Here's the second result of sin, eventual physical death. Chapter 3, verse 19 tells us the same thing. You, you were dust, Adam, and now because of this you will return to dust. We get over one more chapter. Chapter 4, we have our first murder. Cain kills Abel. We get to chapter 5, and it reads like an obituary. Chapter 5, verse 5, and he died. Verse 8, and he died. Verse 11, and he died. Verse 14, and he died. Verse 17, and he died. Verse 20, and he died. Verse 25, and he died. Verse 31, and he died. You get the point. But the bigger point is this. We're going to need someone to purchase us for restoration because we destroyed it all. So Highland, sisters and brothers, let your hearts rejoice. Don't be overwhelmed with the grief of this narrative because there are, praise God, glimpses of a grace. And we saw, we kind of ran through it very quickly. One of the first graces we see is in chapter 3, verse 15. This is like like God was speaking to the enemy. God was speaking to the serpent and said to the serpent, I'm going to put an enmity between you and, and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head. In the middle of judgment, God remembers mercy and we see, first of all, the promise of Christ. This is the first mention of the gospel in all of the Bible, the good news. Our spiritual forefathers called this proto-evangelium, proto-first-evangelium gospel. The very first gospel is a picture of this upcoming battle between the Messiah, the promised one, and the serpent. And the Messiah will be victorious. He will bruise or he will crush. Uh, it's the word in, in, in Hebrew, shuf, which means he will overwhelm you, Satan. Another glimpse of grace we see is surrounding the flood. The, the flood happens in chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. In, in chapter 6, verse 18, if you want to turn there, it's a great little, little passage here. In chapter 6, verse 18, just one statement here that begins to change everything. Verse 18 of chapter 6, but this is God speaking, I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, Noah, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives 
with you. It's the first time we see the word covenant in the Bible, and it's an extremely important word in Scripture. We're going to look at it next week. The very first covenants we'll look at next Sunday morning as a part of this series. But here in this passage, we see this extremely important word. So again, in the middle of judgment, it's about to rain, and God's mercy steps in, and the promise of a covenant. So the glimpses of grace is the promise of Christ, the promise of a covenant. A covenant is a promise of God to his people that he will bless them, he will protect them, he will provide for them, he will establish his people, he will save for himself his people, he will call people to himself. So like we're, we're just starting on this arc of redemption. And you notice just in these first 11 chapters, it's a story with some very heavy narratives Satan comes and he tempts and really he, he wins out on the temptation. Man and woman, they disbelieve God's word. Man and woman, they disbelieve God's character. And, and they're banished from the garden. They're going to now experience death and then Cain kills Abel and then God regrets he even made mankind and destroys the world in a, in a worldwide flood and some heavy, let's be honest, depressing narratives. So let me end with, if you will, some good news. Genesis chapter 1 through 11 leaves us holding on to hope. Because in chapter 3 verse 15 we see first of all Satan will be defeated. He will be crushed by a coming Christ. In fact, Satan will be made a spectacle for all the world to see when this coming Christ, this Messiah, this promised one will crush his head. Satan will be defeated. Number 2, sin will be destroyed. Sin was covered over temporarily in the Old Testament by the waters. But one day, sister and brother, our sin will be forever covered over by the blood of Jesus Christ. Genesis chapter 1, verse 11, leaves us holding on to hope, thirdly, because God's people will be rescued. Another very important scripture in these few chapters is chapter 7, verse 1. If you have a second to look there, it's good. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark. You come on in, you and all of your household, for God says here, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Here's what you need to see also. Here's how God leaves us holding on to hope in Genesis 1 through 11. God's people will be rescued. You see, the ark was, was a refuge for those who believe. Listen, church, the cross is our refuge for those who believe. Uh, fourthly, God's creation will be restored. After it rains, the clouds are going to pull back. After it rains, the, the waters are going to pull back. After it rains, the flood's going to pull back. Really important words. I'm saying it three times. They will do what? They will pull back. One day, the clouds will pull back. And we'll look up into the eastern sky. And just as the waters pulled back and creation was seen again, one day, the clouds will pull back and there'll be a brand new creation a new heaven, and a new earth. Here's good news for everyone in this house today. Chapter 3, verse 8 reminds us that God graciously pursues the guilty. Adam and Eve had already dismissed God. They rejected God's authority. They pushed back on him, but God goes to them. Adam and Eve were guilty, and God came to them. Here's the story of our salvation, church. We were guilty, and God came to us. In Christ, even when we were guilty, even when we were rebels, praise God, he comes running after the guilty. Here's the next thing we see. God covers the shameful. We see in chapter 3, verse 21, Adam and Eve, they were ashamed of their sin. 
So God covered them. Specifically, he had to cut an animal to take off the outside hide of that animal. So there was blood being spilt for the covering of the sin and shame of Adam and Eve. Oh gosh, church, I sure hope you see Jesus there. Our unrighteousness is covered by the righteousness of Christ, but it would cost him the spilling of blood. Lastly, here's how Genesis 1 through 11 leaves us holding on to hope. The, the Lord of all heaven and earth, God will be praised. In chapter 8, verse 20, after the flood waters have pulled back and, and they're stepping now onto Noah and his family, stepping onto the, the revealed creation, that which had been covered up, Noah steps onto there, he and his family. What do they do? They build an altar and they worship God. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, the name of the Lord will be praised. In the Bible, it's a story of redemption. It spans from creation to recreation. It's the story of a lifetime. Christian, it's the story of eternity. God will restore all that has been destroyed. Praise his holy name. Would you stand with me, please? Let's pray together. Jesus, you are our only hope. Christ, it was on your cross where you made a spectacle of our enemy and you trampled death. And Jesus, you purchased for us the restoration of all that we had destroyed. This is our story. And you are our God who sent your treasure, your very best who would bleed out and purchase for us. And so the Bible to us is our book of redemption. Your story, oh God, of our redemption. So through the Son, through Christ alone, we believe. Through Christ alone, we pray. Through Christ alone, we sing.